Which Bible character best represents your life? I knew that was going to happen. No, it's, don't worry about it. <laughs> Happy Father's Day to all the dads watching. Which Bible character best represents your life? If you had to think about a Bible character, which one do you most identify with? Now, if you said Jesus, Read it again, okay? Because if you're like, Jesus, that's me, perfect, sinless, savior of the world, the son of God, that's me, okay? Um, no, it's not. Go back and listen to last week's message called Jesus is God because Jesus is God, we are not. That's why we need Jesus. So besides Jesus, which character in the Bible do you most identify with? There's some characters that are kind of hard to identify with, like Solomon, you know, the richest, most successful, the most powerful, wise man who's ever lived in the history of the world. You're like, I called dibs on that one. But he also had 800 wives. You're like, no, thank you. Never mind. Uh, I got one wife and sometimes one is too many. Other than that, um, how about this one? Father's Day today. So uh, Abraham, Father Abraham, he had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, I got two daughters, so kind of hard to identify with that as well. Or like we studied not too long ago, a sermon over Judas, right? How many of you want to be Judas? You're like, one, two, three, not it, not me. Like we don't name our kids Judas for good reason. But there's one character in the Bible that I think that we can all easily identify with, and it's the man that we're going to meet today. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 66, in a sermon called Jesus and Peter. We're going to take a look at a man named Peter, and we're going to learn five lessons from the life of Peter. Here we go, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 66. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. If you have your fake Bible on your phone, Mark chapter 14, verse 66. Peter, there's our guy right there. Peter was below in the courtyard, and one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter was warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were with the Nazarene Jesus, but he denied it. Let me go ahead and catch you up to speed. We're in Mark 14. We've been looking at the life and ministry of Jesus throughout the study of the gospel of Mark. And what we've seen right now, it's the last week of the life of Jesus, the final week, the final hours. It is Friday. And just a few moments after this story, Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. And then we all know how the story ends. Mark 16, Jesus resurrects. But here in this moment, Jesus is upstairs in the high priest's house. And he is being led through a series of false trials, false accusations. He's been blindfolded. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been spit on. And he has been condemned to death. So we're getting a behind-the-scenes look at the last day of Jesus' life. Jesus is upstairs. He is in the high priest's home. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning. And then the scene shifts to Peter downstairs in the courtyard. What is Peter going to do? While Jesus is being arrested and while Jesus is on trial, what does Peter do? He denies him. He's down in the courtyard. You were also with the Nazarene Jesus, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out from the gateway and the rooster crowed. And a servant girl said to him and began again saying to the bystanders, this man is one of them, but... Again, he denied it. And a little while by the bystanders again, they said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he invoked a curse on himself, and he began to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down, and he wept. For those of you who are new, this is the 62nd sermon in our study through the book of Mark, where we've been looking at who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and what it means for us to live our lives for Jesus. In March of 2018, we started our study through the simple gospel because I noticed very early on in our church, there's a lot of new believers, a lot of new people who are getting baptized, a lot of people who are new to church or new to faith, or maybe it's your first time 
time or first time in a long time. And I thought as a church, if we could just get people to know who Jesus is, then our church will be healthy, our church will be growing, and people would be able to experience what we call life change through Jesus. And so for three years, we've been studying the gospel of Mark, but Mark also lasts three years. Jesus' ministry was a three-year ministry period. So for three years, we're up to chapter 14. And what we see through all of the gospel of Mark is that there's one man who has been by Jesus' side the entire time. And it's the man we're looking at today, Peter. Peter has always been there from Mark chapter 1 until this is the last story in Mark's gospel that we read of Peter. And so let me just go ahead and kind of see if you relate to anything about Peter's life. How many of you have a job? Anybody working? Anybody have a job? Had a job? Okay, good job. Um, Peter had a job. When we meet Peter first in Mark chapter one, what is he doing? He's a, he's a fisherman. So he's a blue collar. Thank you. You got that joke. Uh, he's a blue collar worker. He's a fisherman. Uh, he is from a rural small town, works really hard. He, he probably, you know, um, wears a Nomex, works an average job, drinks Coors Light. Like that's probably who Peter is. Anybody kind of like that? Got a good old boy type job? That's who Peter was. And so some of us, we identify with Peter. I mean, how many of you are from a, a, a rural town, a small town, like Orange or Vider or, you know, uh, Jasper, Buna? That's probably where he was from because in the text here, it says he was from Galilee. How many of you are from a small town? How many of you got out of that town as fast as you could? All right, that's a lot like Peter. So he had a job. He was from a small town. Um, how many of you have a mother-in-law? Go ahead, raise your hand. Don't be embarrassed. You got a mother-in-law? Okay, um, unless you brought your mother-in-law to church. It's, uh, okay. Um, how, how do you get a mother-in-law? You have to be married first, right? I've never met a young guy who's like, I really want a mother-in-law. Uh, no, like you get a wife and they throw in the mother-in-law for free. It, <laughs> It's kind of like when you go buy a car and they give you the air freshener, you're like, it's nice, but I wouldn't have spent $30,000 on an air freshener, okay? Uh, in Mark chapter two, Jesus, he actually heals Peter's mother-in-law, which means Peter also had a wife. See, some traditions like the Catholics, they'll say that Peter was never married and that's why priests can't get married. But then in Mark chapter two, we see that he had a mother-in-law, which also means he has a wife. How many of you are married? Okay, then you can identify a little bit with Peter. How many of you have a nickname? You got a nickname? Okay, we give nicknames to the people we love the most or the people we hate the most, but we just don't tell them those names, okay? So like for me, I, uh, I have a nickname for my wife, Ashley. I call her my koala bear because whenever she hugs me, she squeezes me so tight and she just oh, gives the best hug. So she's my koala bear. Ashley also has a nickname for me, but I will not tell you that because it's inappropriate. Um, <laughs> I also have a nickname for my staff. So for here at Redemption, um, our campus, or, sorry, our small groups director, uh, Ethan, uh, he, I have a nickname for Ethan as well. Yeah, you, if you're around, you might notice that I oftentimes call him Trevor uh, because <laughs> I, get the, I get the two of them confused. Trevor's our campus director. I even got the names mixed up even just trying to tell this joke, okay? Uh, but also I'm forgetful. How many of you are forgetful? Any of you guys forgetful? Okay, there's a story in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus just fed a multitude of people. And after he feeds this giant multitude, there's seven baskets left over. They get in the boat and they're heading to the other side. And there's an argument that breaks out about Jesus being able to provide. And he asks, hey, where's the bread? And they all look at Peter and Peter forgot the miracle bread. Jesus fed 4,000 people, and they left the bread behind. You ever leave your to-go box? Like, that's kind of what happens. But this is like miracle bread, okay? I mean, it's better than buffalo wild wings. And Peter forgot the miracle bread. How many of you are forgetful? Peter's nickname was actually, see, I forgot to tell you this about the nickname part. See, I am forgetful. Uh, Peter's original name was Simon, son of John. That was his name when we meet him. He is Simon, son of John. But Jesus gives him a new nickname. There's a story in Mark chapter eight when Jesus first prophesies about his soon coming death and resurrection. He says, the son of man will be betrayed, handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and three days later, he will rise again. And he asks his disciples, who do people say? say that I am. 
And Peter says, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. And Jesus leans in and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, with all boldness, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Holy One, the Chosen One. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, ding, 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 winner, winner, chicken dinner. Peter, you're the first person to make a public confession of faith. And on this rock, I will build my church. And Jesus renames Peter Rock. See, his name originally was Simon, son of John. But now he goes by Petros or Rock, which means his actual name would be Simon the Rock Johnson. If you smell, I have to commit, okay? You have to commit. You can't just be like, if you, you have to commit to that joke. But seriously, just a little fun Bible fact, Simon the Rock Johnson, what an awesome name. But the other thing is this, how many of you guys have regrets? Do you ever say something like that joke I just said, you regret and you wish you could take it back? Anybody ever live their life with regrets? You ever say things you shouldn't say, do things you shouldn't do? Right, live in ways or find yourself in situations that you never thought that you would be in. Then you can identify with Peter because that's a lot of Peter's life. Like Peter's the guy who he acts before he thinks. Like he's go, ready, set. That's how Peter lives his life. And when you live your life go, ready, set, you end up finding that you actually have a lot of regrets. Peter says things that he should not have said, and he does things and finds himself in situations that he never thought that he would be in. The story we're reading today is the biggest regret of Peter's life. It's the biggest mistake of Peter's life. It's the moment of Peter's life where he wishes he could take it back. I mean, let's just see how Mark chapter 14 really unfolds because here we see where his moment of regret began. In Mark 14, verse 27, Jesus, for the fourth time, is prophesying his death, burial, and his resurrection. He's in the upper room with all of his disciples. They're breaking bread. They're having communion, the Passover meal. And here's what Jesus tells them. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. And Peter speaks up. Oh, Peter, here we go. But, but Peter said to him, even if they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. But Peter doubled down and he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. All these other guys, they might fail you, but I'm never going to fail you. All those other guys, they are junior varsity. I'm varsity. I'm Peter. I'm built for tough. I'm the rock, Johnson. That's who I am. And Peter speaks with a lot of boldness, a lot of brashness. And Peter says that he will never deny him, even if he has to deny him. This is the moment where Peter's regret began. Because immediately after this, Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane and he begins to pray because he feels the weight of the wrath of God that is being placed upon him. As he is going to his death, he literally begins to sweat drops of blood because of the stress and the emotional duress that is upon him. And he needs his friends to be there to support him. And so Jesus asks Peter, Peter, will you pray with me? And Peter says, yes, absolutely. I will pray with you over there with my eyes closed asleep. And so Jesus gets up and goes again, Peter, will you pray with me? Peter's like, yes, let me saw these logs first. And he goes to sleep again. And then he goes to him a third time and says, Peter, will you pray with me? And Peter's like, yes, let me pray to the back of my eyelids. And he falls asleep on him again. Can you not just stay and watch and pray with me for one hour? And Peter, we got to see how the transition of Peter's life begins to unfold. After this, Judas comes in and betrays Jesus with a kiss. A whole uh, army comes in and seizes Jesus while he is in the garden. He has a couple of hundred Roman soldiers, the 70 Sanhedrin leaders. They arrest Jesus and Peter feeling pretty, pretty, pretty bold in this moment. He kind of wakes up. You ever like take a nap and someone wake you up and immediately like, whoa, hey, what's going on? Like that's Peter because he pulls out his sword and he chops the dude's ear off. Okay, now let me just say he wasn't aiming for the ear. 
Okay, he, he swung and he missed. Like that's Peter's life, just swing and a miss. His whole life is just swing and a miss. He chops off this dude's ear. And so Jesus bends down, picks up, and he heals the guy's ear, turns and rebukes Peter. I think Jesus not only healed the guy's ear because he loves his enemies, but he also wanted this dude to hear him yell at Peter too. <laughs> and so he, he yells at Peter, rebukes Peter, and then he is arrested and seized, and all of the disciples, they abandon Jesus. They flee from Jesus, just as Jesus said would happen. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. And Peter, he runs away from Jesus. The section we looked at just before, Jesus is brought to the high priest's house. False charges, false accusations are brought up against Jesus. Who do you say that you are? Are you the Christ? Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory with all power. They tore their clothes. They accused him of blasphemy, and they sentenced him to death. They blindfolded him. They beat him. They spit on him. They slapped him in the face and said, prophet, prophesy, and he was condemned to death. And while Jesus is upstairs, and he is at the high priest's house, go Going through this false trial, where is Peter at? The one who said, I will never deny you. I will always be right there by your side. Verse 54 says, Peter followed him at a distance. The one who had been by his side for 14 chapters now is following him at a distance. Have you ever at one point of your life been really close to Jesus, but now you find yourself today following at a distance? That's Peter. We can all identify with Peter because there's been times where we've been close to Jesus, but yet there's also been times where we're following at a distance. Some of you, you're here today, and I know you're here, and you have been following Jesus, and you're close to him, and you're growing in your faith, and you're surrendering your life to him, and you're reading your Bible, and you're praying, and you're passionate about your pursuit after him. But I also know that in a room like this, there's also people who are like Peter who are following Christ at a distance. Jesus is upstairs where he's about to atone for the sins of the world, including the sins of those who follow at a distance. And Peter is downstairs, warming himself by a fire. How many of you, you live with regrets? You live thinking about your mistakes. You look back on your life and there's those days or those moments or there's those seasons where you think, I wish I could get that back because I would have done things differently. You say things that you shouldn't have said. You do things that you should not have done. And maybe you have even found yourself in situations or places or circumstances that you never dreamed that you would be. And you live with regrets. Maybe as you close your eyes and you go to sleep at night, all it is is like a movie or a film of the worst day and the worst decisions on repeat playing and haunting and torturing you while you sleep. There are many people who live every single day bound and slaves to their past and held hostage by their regrets. If that's you, I want you to know that you're in good company and you're not alone because that's Peter's life too. And the truth is, the reason why we can all identify with Peter is because we are Peter. Peter's story is our story. We love Peter because we are Peter. We love him because he represents who we are. He represents all of us. You are a Peter, and she is a Peter, and we are all a Peter, and I am, and you are, and everybody who ever lived is Peter because Peter represents all of us. We have all said and done things that we should not have done and been and done places that we should not have been at. Just like Peter, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like Peter, we have all gone astray and we find ourselves in moments just like this in Mark chapter 14, where instead of following closely to Jesus, now we are following him at a distance. We love Peter because if we are honest with ourselves, he represents our life. And so as we study this, I don't want us just to love him, laugh at him, or look to him. What I want us to do is I want us to, to learn from him. Because Peter is actually the source behind the book of Mark. 
I've been saying this throughout the series, but I'll, I'll remind us all today is that Mark may have wrote the book of Mark, but Peter is actually the source. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter, as an old man, he has a young protege named Mark, and he's telling Mark the accounts of the life of Jesus because he was right there for all of it. And at the end, as they're going through the passion narrative, the most important scene of Jesus' life, Peter, he tells him, hey, let me give you a behind-the-scenes access look into what truly took place. Because while Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world, I was downstairs denying him to his little slave girls. I want you to write this down. I want you to put that in the book. Are you sure? That's a little embarrassing. He says, I know, but I want you to put it there anyway. But, but that's the worst day of your life. I know but maybe it'll help somebody later on in theirs. And so Peter tells Mark, put it in the book so that way people can learn from my mistakes. Is there anybody like a godly parent or maybe a mentor who they teach you and you learn from their mistakes? I call this letting someone else pay your dumb tax. You ever heard of that, the dumb tax? Like if somebody else do something stupid, you're like, oh, I'm never going to do that again. Right? That's what Peter's letting us do. He's teaching us from his faults and failures and flaws, and he is paying the dumb tax for us. So that way we don't have to make the same mistakes that he makes in our life. And so I want to give you five lessons that we can learn from the life of Peter. The first lesson that Peter wants to teach us is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Is that confidence is not a substitute for character. Confidence is not a substitute for character. Was Peter confident? Oh yeah, Peter was very confident. I mean, look what he says here. But he said to him emphatically, he said to him confidently, I will never deny you. I will never let you down, Jesus. Even though they fail you, I will never fail you. I will always be there. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He seemed pretty confident in the early part of Mark chapter 14, did he not? Yet he's not acting very confident whenever he's being confronted by a little slave girl. Because confidence is not a substitute for character. Crisis reveals your character. Crisis reveals your character. One of my favorite quotes comes from the theologian Mike Tyson. Is that everybody has a, pl everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Crisis reveals your character. Peter probably had a plan for 14 chapters. He probably planned that he was going to be right there by Jesus' side. He was probably pretty confident when he said it, but he didn't have the characters to sustain it. In, in, in Mark, we see about Peter. We see different things about his life. We, we see that at the beginning, um, Jesus was walking on water, and Peter's like, hey, can I do that? And Jesus is like, yeah, sure, come on, give it a shot. And he stepped out of the boat and he starts walking on water, very confident. And then he takes his focus off of Jesus, looks down at his situation, and he begins to drown. Because he took his focus off of Jesus, he lost not only his confidence, but also the character that goes along with it. There's another story in Mark chapter 9 called the transfiguration. It's a holy moment where Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, they come and they meet Jesus and he's standing on top of the mountain and the glory that is on Jesus inside begins to radiate on the outside and it's a portrait of the pre-incarnate Jesus from times of eternal past and the glory and the Shekinah glory of God begins to manifest all up on top of the mountain of transfiguration. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and Peter says, it's good for you, I'm here. <laughs> Jesus, aren't you glad I'm here? Let's go build some tents. And I just imagine Moses and Elijah, they're like, he's with you? And Jesus is like, yeah, give him some time. He'll, he'll, he's going to do some good stuff, but it's a little rough around their edges. He needs a little work. He had all of the confidence, but yet he didn't have the character. And confidence without character is really arrogance. And that's exactly where Peter was at. I mean, look at the confidence that he has. I will never deny you. But then when crisis happens and when it matters the most, he didn't have the character to be able to sustain his position by Jesus' side. Whenever I was a new Christian, my pastor actually taught me this all the time. 
When I was a new Christian, he saw that I had passion. He saw that I had confidence. He saw that I had a calling on my life, but he also knew I wasn't mature enough to sustain it. I mean, I don't know if you guys know about this about me, but I am a very passionate person. Okay, I am passionate about everything. that like, I don't halfway do anything. I'd go all the way up to 110. Like, you ever seen that movie Spinal Tap, that, that rock and roll mockumentary, Spinal Tap, where they're like, my amps go up to 11? Like, that's me. They're like, but couldn't you just make 10 louder? Yeah, but they go up to 11. Like, that's, that's how I live my life. Some of y'all, you have a dimmer switch, right? No dimmer switch for me. It's on, off, 100% all the time. That's just go, go. That's just how I live my life. That's how Peter lived his life, and my pastor saw this, and he said, Byron, that is a good thing, but if you don't learn self-control, then that's going to actually damage you in your life. And here's what he told me, and I'm going to tell it to you, and I want you to write this down because it's so incredibly good. Here's what it is, is that passion will take you places that only character can keep you. Passion will take you places that only character will be able to keep you. The passion that Peter had allowed him into that back room whenever Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. The passion that Jesus had caused Peter to step out of the boat. The passion that Peter had allowed him to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The passion that Peter had allowed him to go with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. The passion opened the door, but his character couldn't keep him in the room. Passion will take you places, but only your character will be able to keep you. And confidence without character doesn't matter. I mean, think about it. This is so true in other areas of our life, though. I mean, think about it for um, in marriage. Like, everybody's confident on their wedding day. I will love you. I will cherish you. I will be there for you till death do we part. Give it 14 chapters in three years, and let's see how it goes. Confidence is great on your wedding day, but only character will give you a marriage that lasts 50 years. Or for those of you who are are parents, remember when your first child was born and you're in the hospital room and you're holding that baby and you think, I will do anything for you. I will give you all of myself. I will give you everything that I never had. Three years later, you're telling your kids ice cream spicy because you don't want to share it with them. You're like, no, these cookies are made out of broccoli. You won't like them. <laughs> these, are those, these are those new broccoli cookies. <laughs> Give it three years and 14 chapters. Let's see where you're at. Or even those of you who have uh, got baptized in the church. Everybody's confident on their baptism day. Yay! It's a party. It's a big celebration. At Redemption, we pull out the big foam fingers, and we're all cheering for our one. You get a lock that you put outside on the, on the door because we want to celebrate every single story of life change that takes place. People are very confident on their baptism day, but give it three years and 14 chapters, and are you still walking with Jesus? Are you still as passionate about Jesus today as you were on that day? Are you still close to Jesus or are you now like Peter following him at a distance? You're confident on your baptism day, but character is what's going to sustain the sanctification process that God wants to do in your life. Or when you become a member of a church, you make a covenant and a vow that you're going to tithe, that you're going to give, that you're going to pray, that you're going to support, and that this church won't just be a church, this will be my church. You take ownership that this is my church, and you made a covenant, you became a member of the church. Give it three years and 14 chapters, have a little crisis and conflict, and let's see if you're still as passionate about the church today as you were the day you joined. When things don't go your way, do you get offended and do you get upset? When things don't happen the way you thought that they would, do you get offended and do you get upset or do you continue to pray and to push forward for the life change through Jesus that we signed up to see? Everybody is confident until character matters. Peter was very confident. But let me just tell you, passion will take you places that only character can keep you. Peter's passion led him to see amazing things but his character couldn't sustain him in the last chapter of his life. Work on the character. Develop your character. Focus on your character. For those of us who are leaders, this is sobering for leaders. Because as leaders, it shows us that there's a difference between gifting and anointing. It shows us that there's a difference between talents and calling. Listen, 
It doesn't matter how well you can play the guitar. It doesn't matter how well you can sing. It doesn't matter how well you are at organizational leadership. If you don't have the character, you will not have a ministry. Because it's character that matters most. For those of us who are parents, right now your children are little and they're looking up to you. To them, you are their hero. Don't let them grow up to find out you're actually the villain. Character matters the most. Moms and dads, your character matters the most. For those of you who are, are married, everybody's confident on their wedding day. But only character will secure you a legacy for life. Right. Work on your character. Passion will take you places. Your character can keep you. Confidence is not a substitute for character. Which leads to the second thing is that fear will empty you of your faith. Proverbs 29:25 says this. It says that a fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have two choices. You can live your life in fear of God, or you can live your life with the fear of man, but you can't actually do both. If you live for the praises of people, then you will die by their rejection. You must make a decision. Who are you going to glorify? Who are you going to honor? Who are you going to please? People or God? And if you live your life trying to please people, you will never be able to please the Lord. Fear of man will rob you of your faith. You have a choice. You can either live by the fear of man or you can live according to conscience and the fear of the Lord. Right now, what is Peter's struggle right here? He is struggling with fear of man issues. He sees that Jesus is going to the cross. Jesus has been arrested. He knows that Jesus is Lord. He's already made the public confession of Christ. And yet here in this moment, he is cowering because he doesn't want to be associated with Jesus based upon the fear of what other people are going to say about him. Oh, you're with Jesus. Nope, not me. Oh, you're with Jesus. He denied it. Oh, you're one of those Galileans with Jesus. I don't even know who you're talking about because he was afraid to be associated with Christ in the middle of a culture that rejected him. This is where we find ourselves at today in the society that we live in as well. Have you ever noticed that the Jesus parade is getting smaller and smaller? That you're not getting brownie points for waving the Jesus flag anymore? I mean, the society that we live in has changed. 20 years ago, you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a church. And now due to COVID, one in five churches will not reopen. One in three Christians are no longer attending church. And they may, on a survey, say they're watching church online, but they're not. I mean, we used to, used to go to Walmart and you would walk in and you couldn't just go down an aisle without seeing somebody with those cheesy Christian t-shirts on. It's like Jesus pieces or like this blood is for you. Remember that? Like everybody had WJD bracelets and everybody that you went to high school went to, you know, First Baptist Youth Group. Remember that? Okay, not the same anymore. Scroll through your social media and let's see what the public opinion of Christ is. Instagram memes, TikTok reels, all the different things and what people are saying, Christians are bigots, Christians are idiots, Christians are dumb, Christians are homophobic, Christians are racist, Christians are anti-science, and it's just like a big giant dog pile on Christianity today. It's like whenever we were kids, we used to play musical chairs. Do you remember that game, musical chairs? And for the last couple of decades, the music was playing, and when the music stopped, the church got a seat. Well, what we saw last year is the music stopped playing and the church didn't get a seat. The seat's gone. There's, and we're looking around, we're like, hey, what happened? Well, because it's no longer popular to follow Jesus. I, I mean, think about it from Mark's perspective. I mean, for three years, he's seen crowds following Jesus, like upwards of 20,000 people on a single day. Entire cities would leave to come and to see Jesus. In Mark chapter 11, just that Monday of Holy Week, we saw the triumphal entry. There was uh, crowds waving palm branches, welcoming Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he. Big, big crowd, large crowd following Jesus. Mark chapter 14, they're celebrating Passover, one through nine. The woman with the alabaster jar is pouring out her worship in the upper room. They're breaking bread, singing hymns, but he's not in the upper room anymore. He's down in the courtyard. And it's no longer popular to claim to be with Christ. And now he has a choice to live by the fear of the Lord or to fall according to the fear of man. And he cowers 
at other people's opinions of him. Listen, I'm going to encourage you with something is that as Christians, as the church, we must be more concerned with what God says than what people think. We must be concerned with what God says more so than what other people think about us. They're making fun of them. They're criticizing. When they say, Jesus, Nazareth, that's a dig because nothing good comes from Nazareth. They're saying, you're with one of them. You're with him. You're one of those. How many times at work do you feel that tension when somebody's bad-mouthing Christianity, when you scroll through your Facebook meme and you see an argument criticizing the church and you keep scrolling past it because you don't want to get involved, you don't want to make it awkward, you want people to think you like, they like you, you want people to think you're acceptable, you want to be welcomed by them, as long as you don't think anybody is mean, then everything's going to be okay. And just like Peter, when that happens, you feel the tension. Fear of God, fear of man. What do I do? We saw this especially last year with COVID-19. When COVID first happens, okay, they said 15 days to flatten the curve. Anybody remember that? 15 days to flatten the curve. Here we are 15 months later. And, and we obliged. We said, you know what? Pandemic, we don't know what's going on. Out of abundance of caution, let's go ahead and press pause. And then we'll have service on Easter and we'll get back to life as usual. And then 15 days turned into a month and then a month turned into two months and then two months turned into church online and then it turned into six months and then it just keeps going and going and going. And during that time, people started saying, if the church reopens, it's not loving you have atheists and politicians quoting verses back to us. You got to be loving. You need to be loving. You need to love your neighbor. It's not loving. If you open your church, it's not loving. You need to be loving. So we're like, okay, we'll be loving. And when somebody quotes a verse back at us, we freeze. We're like, oh, I don't know what to do now. But I, I've just been thinking about it more and more. Was it loving to the children who were at home with their abusers and the church being the safe place? Was it loving for us to remain closed? Was it loving for us when husbands and wives were on the brink of divorce and were trying to do Zoom counseling calls instead of actually inner healing and ministry? Is it loving for us when all of the alcoholics were relapsing back into their addiction? Was it loving for us when the addicts were struggling with their temptations? Was that loving that people couldn't come and be in the spiritual presence of God and surrounded by their spiritual faith family? Was that loving? Yes, doctors can treat the body and psychiatrists can treat the mind, but only the spirit of God can treat the soul of a person. Was that loving for us to remain closed that long through that distant and period of time? And they can quote verses back to us. You're not loving. You need to be more loving. Well, we got verses back to them like, do not forsake the assembling of yourself or the gathering of together for in so you stir up one another for love and for good deeds. That's the church. And so we played the game. We say, okay, that's fine. We'll stay closed. But then other places began to reopen. Other people got to start reopening, but the churches still have to stay closed. Like you could go to the casino, but you can't go to church because the casino is safer than the church. Have you ever been to a casino? <laughs> like, like you, you, you could, you know, you, in other places like California, you could go to, you know, Planned Parenthood and have an abortion. You can go to a dispensary and you can get your weed and you could go to the Coco Cabana and you could put $20 in a G-string, but you can't go to church because communion's not safe enough. You got to understand that there is a culture that is opposed to what we're doing here. And we're no longer living in the upper room where as a church we can just sing kumbaya. No, we're down in the courtyard where we have to recognize that if we live a life of fear, it will rob us of our faith. The world has changed. We're no longer in that upper room moment. We are living down in the courtyard and it's gonna take men and women just like yourself who will not cower to fear, but will stand in faith and remain steadfast with their faith and will persevere and press forward with the gospel cause of Jesus Christ. Living by fear will empty you of your faith. You shouldn't be concerned with what people say, but they're gonna make fun of me. So what, you're 35 years old. 
Like, oh no, what if they make fun of me? What if they criticize me? I don't know. Go home, kiss your wife, raise your kids, get a job, live for the glory of God. So what? But what if they don't accept me? If you live for the praises of people, you will die by their rejection. God is pleased with you. Shouldn't that be enough? God loves you. God cares for you. They didn't die for your sins. They didn't atone for the sins of the world. They're not coming back for you. They didn't give you the scriptures of the Holy Spirit. They're not the one who are putting faith and boldness inside of you. Don't worry what they have to say. And here we see Peter, the rock, cowering in front of a servant girl who has no authority to even say anything in his life. But because he feared what people had to say about him, more than what God thought about him already. The third thing we see is this. Not only will fear rob you of your faith, but sin gets easier the more you do it. The more you sin, the more you sin, and the easier sin becomes, the longer you continue living in sin. I mean, just look at the progression of Peter. He denies Jesus the first time. They say, aren't you with him? And she says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sure that first time he rejected Jesus, it probably stung a little bit, don't you think? I mean, it was probably like, ooh, that one hurt. But then he, he kept on doing it. it. Actually, it says the rooster crowed. You know what that was? That was God giving him a way out. Whenever you're, God sees that you're heading in a direction that he doesn't want you to go, he always gives you a way out. First Corinthians tells us this. He says, there is no temptation that is not common to man and that God has provided a way out. What was Peter's way out? The rooster crowing. Jesus prophesied as a warning to him, when you hear the rooster crow, turn around, go home. It's late. You're going to do something you regret. And Peter, he didn't listen to it. He didn't hear it, or maybe he heard it, but he chose not to listen to it, stuffed it down, and continued moving on his way. And after he refused to listen to the first warning, he goes on and he does something he never, he said he never would do. He denies Jesus three times. The rooster represents the Holy Spirit for us. There is a quote unquote rooster inside all of us and it's God the spirit convicting of us of our sins and pointing us towards our identity with him. And when you don't listen to the Holy Spirit, you will be guilty of doing things you never thought you would do. And you will find yourself in places you never thought that you would be. And you will say and do things you never thought you would do without the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so he doesn't obey the first time. And then he goes on and look at the escalation of his sin. He says, first of all, he says this, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He gets up and he goes to another place. Can I just say this? A change of place does not replace a change of heart. He got up and he went somewhere else as if he thought that was going to fix him. So he just goes somewhere else. But if you don't change the heart, it doesn't matter what your scenery looks like if your heart is still not listening to the Holy Spirit. And so he changes his place. And here's what we see next. The servant girl, she began to say to bystanders, this man is one of them, but he denied it. See how much easier it's getting? I mean, the first time he says, I do not know what you're talking about. This one's like, nah. And then look at the last time. Here's what he says. They say, certainly you're one of them for your Galilean. But then he began to invoke a curse. He starts cursing, not only this little girl, but cursing God and cursing himself. And he says, as he swears to him, I do not know this man that you speak of. Listen to the distancing language. He doesn't even use Jesus's name. He's just another person. Sin gets easier the more you do it. The first time, it probably stung a little bit, but the more he entertained it, the easier it got for him. But this is how sin works for all of us. The more we sin, the easier it is for us to continue living in sin. Have you ever noticed that it's easier to watch Netflix than it is to read the Bible? Have you ever noticed that it's easier to spend money than it is to save in budget? Do you know why? Because it's easier. Holiness is hard. Sin is easy. Repentance is hard, but sin is the path of least resistance. 
It's easier for you to live your life in compromise than it is for you to live your life according to your convictions. Do you want an easy life? Compromise everything you do. Do you want a life that is glorifying to God and makes a difference into this world? Live a life that has meaning by your convictions. Sin is easy. And the more you sin, the easier it becomes for you to continue to live in sin. I mean, just let's think about it in a practical sense, right? Think about texting and driving. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you do it because we all know we do it. But think about texting and driving. When, when, when iPhones first came out, everybody's like super conscious about texting and driving. No, I don't want to text and drive. No, I don't want to text and drive. I don't want to text and drive. And so we were like, we don't do it. But then we started doing it. And the more we do it, what happens? the easier it got. And so iPhone came out with this update where it says, are you driving? And now not only are we texting and driving, but we're lying about texting and driving. Because now we're like, nope. And you pull up to a red light and you look at the person next to you and there's that shame look because you both know you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing. But you keep doing it anyway. Why? Because it gets easier the more you do it. But this plays out in every other aspect. I mean, just think about pornography. Like anyone, anyone who respects and values women knows that when you watch that, that is not respect. And yet you watch it. First time when you're like 12 or 13 years old and you have that moment where you're like, this is not right. But you keep doing it and you keep doing it until eventually 10 years later, it's rewired your brain to where you can't even look at a woman without sexualizing them. And then you begin to make excuses of why you do it. And you begin to justify yourself, why you deserve it and how other people have treated you and how you just had that hard day and it's the only way that you could go to sleep. And you start rationalizing, justifying why it's wrong for other people, but it's right for you. No one ever grows up thinking that they're gonna be a junkie. Nobody ever grows up thinking that they're gonna become alcoholics or that they're gonna abuse their kids. Nobody ever grows up thinking that, but it happens one time, two times, two times, too many. Come on now. And then eventually it eats you alive and it becomes a part of who you are and you keep going back to it and going back to it and going back to it until eventually it consumes you whole because sin gets easier the more you do it. So eventually you don't even feel bad about it. It's easy to live a life of compromise. Peter, in this moment, he is compromising himself, but it's hard for you to live a life of conviction, but you can do hard things. Do you know that? You can do hard things, and you can live a life that matters when you live a life according to the words of God. It's easy for you to move in with your boyfriend. It's hard for you to get married. It's easy for you to, to, to take. It's hard for us to be generous. It's easy for us to gossip, but it's hard for us to forgive. It's easy to live by compromise, but you need to live by your convictions. Which leads to the fourth thing is this. Some of you right now, you're probably feeling it. You're squirming a little bit in your chair. I kind of hit too close to the heart. You're white knuckling your seat, not wanting to make eye contact with me because I hit your thing. And I want to share this with you, is that if you allow yourself to stay in that place right here, it will only lead to death in your life. Because regret leads to death. But what Peter wants us to know is that genuine repentance leads to life. Regret leads to death, but repentance leads to life. Look at how the story goes. Immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. I love Luke's retelling of this account. There's three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and they all tell the same story from a different perspective. And here's what Luke says. And immediately while he was still speaking, that's Peter, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. In the moment of your greatest regret, in the moment of your biggest sin, in the moment of your deepest failure, when you can't even look at God, God is looking for you. God is looking at you. God is pursuing after you. When you run from him, he is running towards you. And in that moment of deepest regret, Jesus makes eye contact with you. Friends, this is the gospel message. 
that we have run from him, but he has run towards us, that we have abandoned him, but yet he still pursues after us. And even though we have denied him, Jesus still died for us. That, my friends, is the gospel message. And in this moment, as Peter is denying Jesus, the guards in the upper room, they take him and they walk him through the courtyard. And in the moment of Peter's deepest sin, he makes eye contact with his savior. And Jesus looks at him. And Peter broke down and he began to weep. There is a brokenness that men feel where it's acceptable for them to weep. It's not bad for men to cry. But when, when you are confronted with your sin and you are not confronted with yourself, there is a problem. And he sees his sin and he is broken over it. He breaks down and he weeps and begins to weep bitterly because when he sees his sin, he sees himself. And in that moment, he locks eyes with his savior and Jesus doesn't give him a look of disappointment. I believe when I read this, that Jesus isn't disappointed at Peter. He's not looking at Peter and saying, Peter, how could you? How dare you? How could you do such a thing to me? Because Jesus already knew he was going to do it. Remember back up to 14? Jesus said, this was going to happen. You're going to deny me too. Peter said, never, because Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus was not shocked by this. Jesus was not surprised by this. It didn't take Jesus off guard. He said it was going to happen, and it happened exactly like he said it was going to happen, and he still looked towards him. You may think you have disappointed him, but he has never been disappointed in you. He makes contact with him and says, I know you better than you know you, and I love you more than you think I do. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down is that Jesus is better than you think he is, and he loves you more than you think he does. If there's one thing that I could communicate to you, if there's one thing that I could get through to you, if there's one thing that you remember through this entire sermon, I want you to remember this, is that Jesus is better than you think that he is. Whatever you're going through, Jesus is better. Whatever struggle you have, Jesus is better. Whatever temptations face you, Jesus is better. No matter what other people say, Jesus is better. No matter where you are at, Jesus is better. No matter who you are, Jesus is better. No matter what you're going through, Jesus is better. No matter what your past was, Jesus is better. No matter what anxiety you feel, Jesus is better. No matter what you think, Jesus is better than you think, and he loves you more than you can imagine that he loves you. In the deepest regret, Jesus goes looking for Peter. In the middle of your pain, Jesus was watching and looking for you. In the middle of your sin, Jesus was watching and looking for you. When you were strung out, Jesus was looking for you. When you were going through your divorce, Jesus was looking for you. When you were cheating on your spouse, Jesus was still looking for you. And for your spouse who's heartbroken, Jesus was still looking at them. If you think you can out the grace of God, you think way too much of yourself. In this moment... We have this portrait of what a life of regret versus a life of repentance looks like. Regret is when you just carry that with you and you don't turn it over to God. Regret leads to death. And the longer you live a life of regret, the more drawn out and painful the process of death becomes. We have two men, Judas and Peter. Their stories are basically the same. Both denied Jesus, both rejected Jesus, but yet their outcomes are completely different. Why? Because they responded differently. You can have two people who go through the same circumstance and come out completely different sides. So Judas, what does he do? He can't live with the regret. 
And so he goes and he finds a rope and he hangs himself. His regret led to his death. What does Peter do? Peter, he looks eyes with Jesus and he is forgiven in that moment. He is brought back in that moment. He remembers not only who Jesus is, but he remembers who he is and he finds a path towards life. Regret leads to death. Repentance leads to life. The Puritans, they would actually say the that repentance is living quorum Deo, living in the face of God. What does Jesus do? He looks after Peter. He looks at Peter and Peter looks back at him. That, my friends, is a word picture of what true, genuine repentance looks like. That your entire life, you're running from Jesus. Your back is towards Jesus. Your face is towards your sin. And then you have a change of heart, change of mind, change of life. And then you begin to face Jesus, locking eyes with him, seeing him, seeing yourself, seeing your sin. And and then beholding your savior. That, my friends, is repentance. And that's what Peter had, and that's what Judas refused to do. First Corinthians goes on, and Paul picks this up, and he says this, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. God doesn't want you living a life of regret. You don't need to live a life of regret. Now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is salvation without regret. And some of you are reminding God of the things that you have done. Stop reminding him when he's already forgiven you. Receive the forgiveness that's available through the cross of Jesus Christ. Salvation without regret. True, genuine repentance leads to a life without regret, yet worldly grief, simply feeling bad that you got caught, leads to death. Regret versus repentance. The choice is yours. Martin Luther, the great reformer, as he launched his Protestant Reformation, the opening line to the 95 Theses is this, the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not just one and done. You can't be like, oh, I repented 17 years ago. Guess I never have to do that again. It's a continual process, living day to day, looking Jesus in the eyes. And if you're spending time with Jesus and you're looking Jesus in the eyes, then eventually the things that you suffer and struggle with will no longer catch your attention anymore. You have a choice to live in regret or to live in repentance. Choose repentance because repentance leads to life. Everything else only leads to death. And then lastly, number five, if Peter was here today, this is what he would want you to know is that failure doesn't have to be your future. If the story ended here, Peter breaking down, weeping bitterly, tragic story. Because actually, in Mark's gospel, this is the last time that we meet Peter. And if this is where his story ends, it would be tragic. But this is not where his story ends. And for those of you who are here today with regret, your life doesn't have to end where your story last ended. Failure does not have to be your future. Take this lesson from Mark, because after the resurrection of Jesus... I mean, could you just imagine how Peter must have felt on Saturday? The last things that he said about Jesus is denying him. Imagine if the last words you said to your spouse was, I hate you. Imagine if the last words you said to your children is, don't come home again. And that night they get in a car crash and they die or something tragic and terrible happens. And you have to live with the last words you said. Peter on Saturday is thinking about the last words that he said to Jesus. I don't even know this man. But if Peter had been paying attention, he knew that Sunday was coming too. And after the resurrection, Jesus, he has some disciples, women that go up to the tomb to go and prepare and to go and do the burial for Jesus. And the tomb is gone. The stone has been rolled away. And there's an angel there. And they, they look and they see the angel. And here's what the angel says to them. They say, this Jesus that you are looking for, he was crucified, but he is risen and he is not here. See the place where they have buried him, but go tell his disciples and who? And Peter. Wow. Peter's a disciple. Why would the angel single out Peter? Because he wanted him to know. God loves each and every one of us as if there were only one of us. 
And yes, God has a plan, and yes, God has a purpose, and yes, God loves the church, and God loves all of us, but he especially loves you. And he especially loves you, 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 and he especially loves you you because we are all Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Because in this moment, what Jesus is doing, I believe, is he is reconciling the relationship. He's bringing Peter back into a personal relationship with him. He's not only restoring him as a leader, but he's reconciling him as a friend. And he's bringing Peter back in. Because at this point, Peter had gone back to his old life. John's gospel tells us that Peter went back to fishing. That's what some of us do. When we feel like failures, we go back to what's comfortable and what's safe. We go back to what we know. We go back to our addictions. We go back to our relationships. We go back to our old ways of living. We go back. We go back to how it was because how it was was easy. And it's what we know and it's what's safe. And so Peter had gone back to fishing. And they said, go tell Peter. Just like he said in the upper room, after I rise, I will meet you in Galilee. And Jesus goes walking 80 miles from Jerusalem just to find Peter. God sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him will have everlasting life. God sends his son. Jesus walks 80 miles to the shores of Galilee just to find Peter. And he calls out to him and he says, throw your nets to the other side. And Peter jumps out of the boat. He doesn't walk this time on the water. He just jumps out of it. And all the other disciples are like, we could row back to shore. Like, I mean, like, just give us some time. Peter couldn't wait because he doesn't live his life waiting. He always wants to go. And he jumps and he swims to that shoreline and he sits down. And John's gospel tells us that Jesus built a fire. Where did Peter deny Jesus? Around a fire. And then Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. And what is he doing here? He is giving Peter the opportunity to learn from his mistakes because failure only comes when you are unwilling to learn from your mistakes. That's what failure is. Failure is only when you are unwilling to learn from your mistakes. Your past doesn't have to be your future. And failure doesn't have to be your future, but you have to own it. Take responsibility of it. And then stand up with a new opportunity to live a new life. Failure only comes when you are unwilling to learn from your mistakes. Have we made mistakes? Yes. But that doesn't mean we're failures. We only fail when we refuse to learn. Peter writes this story about 20 to 30 years later. And he tells Mark, he says, put that in the book. Because I'm pretty sure maybe in 2,000 years, there'll be someone at Redemption Church who needs to learn from my failures, so that way their future doesn't have to end. Peter goes on and he preaches Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved in a single day. Peter gets thrown into prison. They say, stop preaching about Jesus. He said, nope, and they throw him in prison. He sends out missionaries. He's the pastor of the first church. And at the end of his life, what the gospel history, what church history tells us is this. At the end of his life, Peter is crucified upside down. And they said, we're going to kill you. He said, only one, only one circumstance. You don't kill me like Jesus because I don't deserve to die like my Savior. Crucify me upside down. And they hung Peter upside down. He goes from denying Jesus to a little slave girl to transforming and changing the world. Why? Because he learned from his mistakes. Sure, you've made some mistakes. You sinned. You failed. You've got regrets, but you don't have to live your life that way. We learn from them. Who do you identify with? For me, it's Peter, because I have made so many mistakes. I have failed him so many times, but he's been faithful to me through and through. He has never given up on me. He has never abandoned me. He has never forgotten me. And when I have denied him, he died for me. And even in my deepest moments of regret and pain, Jesus still looks at me. I love you more than you think I do. I'm better than you think I am. That's Peter's story. That's our story. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, 
This is the story God wants you to have too. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for the life of a man named Peter. Let us learn from him. Let us not just study him, but God, let us emulate him so that way we can begin to see the wonderful things that he accomplished in his life and our own lives today. God, I pray for all the dads in the room. I pray that you would encourage them, that you would build them up, that you would strengthen them to be the men that you've created them to be. I pray for all the husbands and wives in the room today, God, that you would supply the character needed to have a legacy that lasts with generations of their last name. God, I pray for all of the young men and the young women in the room. God, I know that holiness is hard, but the alternative is much more difficult. And so God, I pray for every person in this room who is struggling with temptations and sin and compromise to stand firm and to live by conviction. We pray for those who are lost today that they would be found. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the invitation of Peter is also invited to you. While you denied him, Jesus still went to the cross knowing everything that you have done and everything that you will do. And he said, I still choose you. Forgiveness is available through the blood of Jesus. We invite you to become a Christian today. I got good news, redemption. Some of y'all are gonna become a Christian today. My little brother became a Christian too.